Ryan Stanton here with ASEP Frontline. Today, we have a special episode of the podcast from a presentation performed for the Kentucky Statewide Opioid Stewardship Program uh, on the treatment and pain management of renal colic. Now, this is an important topic because it's one area of emergency medicine and acute pain presentation where I feel emergency physicians still, in many ways, and other, other uh, healthcare professionals will lean on uh, opioids as a first-line management option. However, the Evidence is there that other options, uh, other non-opioid options, are as good, if not superior, than using opioids in the first line. Uh, we found with the Kentucky Statewide Opioid Stewardship that this is the one metric that we've put out, uh, the one goal that we've put out that has received the uh, has received the most resistance and the most challenge with implementing. We talk about the the actual metric metric itself, but I'm also joined by Dr. Casey Grover whose hospital in California has done a fantastic job at implementing a protocol for uh, acute management of uh, renal colic. So uh, with that in mind, enjoy the presentation, hopefully some good information that will continue to decrease the dependence on uh, opioids within our emergency departments and, um, and as a result, uh, risk reduction associated with treating our patients' uh, pain uh, actively while still at the same time uh, protecting them from the potential risk associated with addiction. You know, the whole idea behind this, we're talking about the the uh, Kentucky SOS program associated with alternatives to opioids. Um, so, you know, it's me. I'm, I'm Ryan Stanton, emergency physician uh, based out of Lexington, Kentucky with the Baptist Health System, also board, certi board certified emergency medicine, also board certified in EMS medicine as well. Um, Dr. Casey Grover is with me today as well uh, because I figure that uh, we should have some expertise on folks that have gone ahead and done a lot of this stuff already to kind of give an idea of, of what to do, how to, what to expect, and uh, what, what you expect to see. So Dr. Grover is based out of uh, CHOMP, the Community Hospital of Monterey Peninsula Emergency Department. Um, I got, I connected with him through our pain medicine and addiction medicine, uh, pain management and addiction medicine section of the American College of Emergency Physicians because, you know, just it's a great gathering of experts and folks that have really been forward thinkers uh, on this. And so I uh, asked him a couple months ago, mentioning that we had had a lot of uh, a number of requests uh, regarding the renal colic specific um, within the Kentucky SOS. And he was very gracious to join us as well. So, um, you know, looking forward to having him. Basically, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of run through the metric itself, um, what it is, what it is not. Uh, then uh, Dr. Grover is going to go through a lot of the things that they have done, the experiences, his personal experience with it, um, and things that you may expect to see within your department as well. Now, I do have the chat pulled up, so if you have any questions at any point, feel free to send them my way. Um, I will answer them as we go. Um, is, if we don't get to a question right away, we may come back to it at the end. We will leave plenty of time because there will be questions uh, so don't be afraid to, to speak up. And I'm hoping that the way I've kind of hit things is that I'm going to address a lot of those initial thoughts that you're going to hear in the what it is and what it is not side of things. I personally don't have any conflicts with regard uh, to this aspect of things. Um, I'm an emergency physician um, here in Lexington and travel with motorsports and that's about it. So um, no conflicts there. You know, just to set the stage, you know, we've to see where we've gone in the last two decades, you know, from a very, you know, the um, the opioids are really for post-surgical and cancer type pain to really becoming what was considered the answer to all things pain. Um, and I think we've realized that, that that was a challenge. That was an issue. And that was the big challenge was that for most of healthcare. Uh, we were really bamboozled into thinking that not only was it the answer that everybody deserved to be pain-free, uh, but also that um, uh, that um, this was the only answer, and that opioids weren't addictive. Uh, that they there wasn't a chance of addiction or dependence. And I think we fell in love with it, thinking that we had an easy answer that we could hit a button, make it happen, everybody would feel better um, with no recourse or no challenges. And um, really much of what we talk about here and with the opioid stewardship programs from around the country is about resetting and getting back to the evidence as opposed to falling for that easy button. But the challenge in healthcare is it's, it's so much harder to remove a practice and change a practice than it is to have never done it to begin with. And so for this, I still feel like that Purdue Pharma 
uh, with their pushes in the late 90s, especially with Oxycontin, are still some of the major players here, as well as some of the regulatory and government-based agencies that put more and more pressure on physicians and hospitals and pharmacies uh, to do these things that uh, were based on uh, really false data. So this is metric number three, metric 3C. Now, the all three of these that we have within the emergency medicine realm are worded very similarly. Um, and so the measure is an outcome description, patients 18 years or older uh, prescribed no opioids during an emergency department encounter for a specific pain-related condition. Numerator, patients 18 years or older who received no opioids prior to discharge from the emergency department after encounter for renal colic, and I mentioned some of the ICD-10 codes. Denominators, patients 18 years or older discharged from the emergency department after initial encounter for renal colic, same codes. Uh, exclusions at this point, none, and frequency of reporting is monthly. Now that seems pretty clear cut. And so I can absolutely see when we're looking at that, why um, we're getting some of the feedback concerns about this none and no and absolutely. And so the whole idea here is about this reset of the mindset. And so this whole metric is about establishing kind of the perfect condition without other out without other contributors. I mean, that this is a very narrow consideration of managing renal colic pain. And then we're going to build it out from there. In healthcare, we don't go to the schools we go to. We don't have the amount of training. We don't have require the amount of experience, board certification, testing, all of those things, because we can isolate everything into one small and easy answer. If we could, we'd already been replaced by computers. So, you know, the fact that we're not seeing healthcare turn into the Walmart checkout lane where we're pushing everything towards uh, do-it-yourself digital scanners uh, is because there's a lot more to it. And we understand that. And there, there is a lot to it. But this is to keep things relatively simple. And it's important to understand um, why we did it this way. And I'll talk a little bit about that more in a minute. But it really is about hitting the reset button to get back to evidence-based pain management and evidence-based acute pain management like we do evidence-based with almost everything else we do in healthcare. If somebody comes in with a STEMI, we send them for PCI. If somebody comes in with sepsis, we hit them with fluids, we hit them with antibiotics, we get cultures, not that order. Cultures first, obviously, don't want everybody freaking out. But, you know, get all of that stuff first. Uh, but we have these processes, evidence-based, based on the best available evidence. And that is one thing to keep in mind, that evidence in medicine evolves. And I think that was part of the issue is we felt like in the 90s and early 2000s, we were going with the evidence. It was evidence that was a little bit bastardized. It was a whole lot bastardized. And then people ran with it. Um, and a lot of that was profit driven. Now we're trying to reel all of this back and get to where we should be, which is not an absence of opioids. They are a fantastic addition to our pharmacies um, in certain situations when appropriate, uh, but also looking at what are the best things for the conditions that are in front of us on any given moment. So what is this metric? It is evidence-based pain management. For those out there that are talking about that, um, you know, you haven't had a kidney stone, you haven't had all that stuff. This is actually the evidence. The evidence is there um, that what we will do and what we are encouraging is in, in the right patient population is the correct and most beneficial path. It really is about harm reduction. Um, you know, we are seeing right now we have this last year was the highest number of overdose deaths in the history of this country, um, about 70% of which were because of or contributed by opioids. And we know right now that it's not like what we were seeing 10 to 12 years ago with prescription pain medications, but we also understand that there's a pathway with the way that opioids trigger the body, the mu, mu receptors, um, and start to repave that road to say, I need more and more and more to get back to that sense and feeling of normal that um, eventually you do transition away from prescription medications. And we've seen that, we've seen that progression from the prescription opioids to heroin to now fentanyl, because the fentanyl, the higher concentration and lower costs as well. It, it is about NSAIDs as if not more being effective than opioids with fewer side effects. And, you know, that sounds like what, you know, that makes sense. I've got, I've got ibuprofen sitting in my medicine cabinet right there. Um, you know, I may have some naproxen, whatever it is, but there's multiple studies that have demonstrated that the NSAIDs for acute pain are equivalent, if not better. In fact, these research studies, the one that's actually referenced here, uh, demonstrates the real only difference 
uh, in terms of negative difference was the increased risk of sedation, nausea, vomiting, GI manifestations with the opioids. Um, and it is known that even therapeutic doses of opioids increase the risk of dependence and abuse. Number needed a harm of 48 to 286. Now, why that big gap? That's interesting because the studies have found that increased uh, the, the physician patterns of prescribing will often dictate the level of harm. So the highest prescribing physicians in terms of doses and frequency of patients are that one in 48. So every 48, we end up with a significant harm associated, not just dependence, not just long-term use. That's really what running around about one in 12. And then those that are more conservative that don't prescribe as many as long a course or high a dose, that number is about one in 286. So significant harm reduction for our patients just based on going with the evidence and looking at the patients that may need an opioid-based intervention if necessary. And there's a couple of reasons that may be the case. It is efforts to reduce opioid administration and prescribing. And we know that somewhere, but we can reduce somewhere between about 80 and 90% of opioid administration and prescribing and not impact um, patient sensation reporting of pain uh, reduction, uh, decreasing time in the emergency department, decreasing returns to the emergency department, as well as uh, no change actually, you know, benefiting your patient satisfaction scores. And that a lot of that has to do with adjusting some of the problems we face in emergency medicine right now, which is wait times, getting people back, getting uh, therapies initiated. It is to right the wrong of the late 90s and early 2000s, where we kind of went astray in the way we used opioids is basically uh, the old uh, adage of the easy button. <clears throat> so this isn't about taking opioids off the list. So in my setting, in my practice setting, when I came into this hospital, when somebody would come in with a kidney stone, the first medication that was put in was Dilaudid. Nothing else, Dilaudid, IV Dilaudid, as soon as you could. When they're discharged, they're discharged with two milligram Dilaudid capsules, um, you know, PRN for the pain. That's fine. That does significantly decrease the pain, but it really doesn't function on the mechanism of the pain and the pathology that's causing that pain. So can we do something that decreases that pain as much and decreases those symptoms as much and somewhat, and, and will also address many of the mechanisms involved. So this isn't about taking opioids off the list, it's reprioritizing that list and getting our NSAIDs, antiemetics, APAP, and other interventions above opioids. With opioids is basically our third line or lower rescue uh, if necessary, but what you'll find with uh, many of the, the data that's out there, opioids compared to NSAIDs, NSAIDs have fewer requirements for rescue medications or interventions. So what it is not, this is not about 0%. None of our things in Kentucky USOS are about zero. They're not about eradicating, completely eradicating. That is in no way, and even when, when the first ALTO program came out at St. Joseph Hospital System in uh, New Jersey, it was billed, especially in, in the media, as the pain, as the opioid-free ED. This isn't about being opioid-free. This is about prioritizing opioids where they need to be often as a rescue medication rather than as the primary or first line therapy. So this is not and should not be considered a 0%. And that's very important to keep in mind. The Kentucky SOS program is not a competition. It's about all of us improving our practices, learning from each other and helping save our fellow Kentuckians and hopefully something that can be uh, reused around the, around the country as we, as we are one of the major epicenters of opioid epidemic within this country. So this isn't a competition as we tend to like to do in healthcare systems. This is about how do we lift each other up and by doing so help our patients save uh, patients' lives. Having to use an opioid is not a failure. And I see that so often um, with, with uh, so many, I'm not sure why there's a superscript there, but this is, it's not a failure. And that's one of the things I'm concerns I'm hearing from physicians and other providers is that it's being considered a failure if they used an opioid. Now, if you're overusing them, that may be, but if it's in the proper setting and there's good reasons, then it's very appropriate. There's, I, in my practice, I use opioids. I don't use them near as much as a lot of my partners and colleagues, um, but I use them when I feel that they are appropriate. 
Uh, being somebody that's done a lot of sports and things like that, when they come in and say ankle pains, wrist fractures, rib fractures, things like that, I can relate to those types of things because I've had those multiple times. So, you know what, you really don't, here's what you need to do potentially instead. Not everyone wants or needs an opioid. Uh, I know a lot of people who want to avoid them as much as possible. Many people still have to work. Many people have to drive. Uh, many people have to go on with their lives as much as possible. Um, when I'm on the road with NASCAR uh, and other motorsports, um, we've got a couple of people who've had kidney stones. Of course, super limited in terms of medications we can prescribe, and of course, can't have anything uh, that is uh, a controlled substance. And but you know we can manage those on the road uh, with a lot of these approaches that you're going to see here, and get fantastic control and management. All patient situations and departments are not the same. I understand there are risk factors. I understand there's chronic kidney disease, elderly patients. I understand there's pope people with allergies, uh, history of GI bleeds or whatever it may be. You know, there's situations where we have to alter our plan and that's where we pull in some of these alternatives, but we have a lot of options here. Um, and Casey's gonna go into a lot of those with what they do at his facility. An appropriate use of an opioid should not be a point of punishment or concern to a practitioner. So that's something I'm gonna talk about in a second. Administrators, this is not a chance to come in and say you've done something wrong. This is how we educate and to say, how do we get everybody into the, that appropriate level bell curve to say, this is what our patient population is, and this is the best ways for us to treat pain. What it's not, it's not for chronic pain. We know that long-term uses of NSAIDs, but we should not be really managing chronic pain in the emergency department anyway. Um, you know, at some point, especially with renal colic, we need to get urology involved if it's a large stone um, you know, it's one of those somebody trying to pass a boulder as opposed to a stone or a pebble or, or you know, you know, pea gravel, whatever it may be. You know, one of those larger stones, you know, is not, not going to pass getting consultant services involved. And this is not gospel. You know, what we have put into this is it's guidance um, and to help get that curve to where it needs to be, that decrease of 60 to 80 percent um, and still manage our patients appropriately, as well as getting better outcomes for our patients from harm reduction and getting them the services that they need. It does not usurp in any way, shape, form, fashion, the physician's judgment and that integral sanctity of the physician-patient relationship, which I think is one of the most important things to protect. It is that relationship between the physician and the patient that needs to be protected. And we need to support that uh, because sometimes I feel now we're, it's almost death by, uh, death by metrics. What physicians and others should do. You should treat the patient that's in front of you absolutely 100% of the time. Take in the picture. You're not an MD and DO because we're doing checklists. We're an MD and a DO because we've gone into four years of medical school, your residency programs, your training, all of the CMEs, all of the, um, all of the other programs that you have to do to maintain uh, that level of uh, board certification, whatever it may be. Um, and so it really is taking in that entire picture of the patient. And that's a challenge because one of the benefits us of the uh, opioids was the easy button. Somebody comes in, doctor, room 17 has this type of pain. All right, give them, boom, go. And then a couple of words and we can keep on moving. Challenges that, that may not be the safest plan. We know that we can safely cut about 60 to 80% of the opioid administration prescribing with equal or better management and outcomes. But note, that's not 100% you know, 60 to 80% and maintain. St. Joseph uh, Healthcare up in New Jersey has maintained that 80% uh, consistently through since they actually created and put out the Alto program and have had so not only increased business because of that consideration of not leaning on opioids um, and the contracts they've had, especially with corporations, but the patient satisfaction, their throughput, all of those things have improved. And if you need to give a, a prescription opioid, you need to document why. That's what we are supposed to do here in Kentucky anyway. Um, you know, with regard to all of the legislation that's happened, documenting why you made that decision. So when somebody's reviewing it down the road, uh, especially somebody involved with this program, there's it's clear the reason: patient with chronic kidney disease, uh, patient with history of significant bleeding issues. You know, whatever may it may be as to why you went a little bit different or made a different decision. Um, so for me, I've personally cut my administration from uh, coming out probably by about 80% um, for renal colic, but, but not 100%. There are cases absolutely that come in my door that they will get an opioid. But a lot of what I do personally is working through these algorithms 
to where I can get an idea of what's going to be successful at home. I want to produce in the emergency department, but in a fat in a faster uh, faster mindset of what they can do at home. So if they're managed in the ER with what I administer, I know that I can continue that at home without any significant challenges or disruptions of their life. The, one of the challenges we have, we hit them as soon as they come in with these big walloping doses of Dilaudid, then what's gonna happen when they go home? Can we continue that? And it's not about zero pain, even though I love the zero pain idea. It really is about allowing that patient to be functional. It's allowing them to do the things that they need to do uh, and to continue their life until it resolves itself. What leaders need to do? Need to provide the tools for rapid assessment, administration of treatment and frequent reassessments. Getting those patients back, getting IVs in place, getting medications, fluids rolling, even if the weights are happening. And then allowing for those frequent reassessments. For my renal colic patients, I get the medicines. <clears throat> as soon as I see it's been administrated, I give them about 15 minutes, then I go in and recheck, see where we are. For about 90% of them, they're relaxed. Honestly, for most of them, I can see the monitor that sits above my desk, that their vital signs have normalized. They're not tachycardic, their blood pressure's come down. All of those things are normalizing. I go in and then that's when we start working on the plan. My goal in an ideal situation is a renal colic to be out the door, in and out the door in 45 minutes. Now, post-COVID, probably not going to happen. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, one of the hospitals I worked at, um, you know, for a little while, they they had that to where it's super efficient, 45 minutes, CT done, medications, fluids, everything done, information, 45 minutes out the door. But that's one of those things we look at is, can we get action early, get them feeling much better, and then work on a plan on follow-up and next steps. Then sharing the utilization data with physicians and other providers. Um, many outliers have no idea that they're an outlier. In my group, we shared the information. One doctor was significantly higher. He had no idea. Now we, we de-identified it. <clears throat> so you're the only one that knows where you are and you don't know the names of the others. So nobody knows who's an outlier. You just, you just know who, that you can see the curve of where everybody is. And then once that person saw that the next month, they were under the curve because they didn't realize their practice was significantly different than the practice of their colleagues. And that's a good way to do it. Share data, share outcomes, share the information, and especially share successes, um, the things that have happened, the, the, the what we've done to help our patients, and then continue to bring that data. So as physicians and other healthcare professionals, we can continue to evolve our practice to ensure we're kind of, we're kind of all on that same page. Give updates and award positive change. We are so much into a punishment era, uh, and I'm sorry, administrators. The pizza, the, the pizza thing is, is kind of getting tough on us, um, especially for us that are a little lactose intolerant. But it's not, you know, for awarding, rewarding that positive change, rewarding successes. You know, really celebrating the things that we're doing to not only help the people within our community acutely, but to protect them long term as well and educate everyone across the board. This needs to be our techs, our nurses, everybody involved. When we change practice like this, like when we initiated lidocaine in our emergency department, there was questions nonstop um, about what does it mean? How does it work? So educating everybody so they understand that there were on the same page that not one accidentally subverts uh, the other practices of another uh, to make sure that we're all on the same page on how we're gonna manage these patients and help them understand how and why and the mechanism. Because when their family members or whoever later comes around and mentions it, uh, they're not saying, well, you didn't get treated appropriately because you didn't get an opioid or whatever it may be, or this is the plan we're gonna do, this works better and this is why. So from that standpoint, I always welcome um, uh, any questions. One of my emails, I know that, uh, SOS has another one, the Ryan A. Stanton at Gmail. That's fine. rstanton.asep.org. Um, the podcast that we have that we've done a number of these interviews on uh, Alto and, and pain management within the emergency department. This actually, this will become one as well. And then if you want to tweet me, you can the at Everyday Med. So with that, I'm going to end my piece of this and I'm going to turn it over to Casey, who's going to take it from here. Casey, it's all yours. Make sure you get your mute button. If not, it's just me doing a mime impression of you. All right, uh, let me get my uh, my slides up here. Uh, let's see here. All right, okay. So hopefully you can see my slides okay. 
I'm seeing the presenter view right now. If, that, if that's the one you want, then it's perfect. All right, I'm getting a little skipping. Is it on my end or is, is everybody hearing my audio okay? Your audio sounds great to me. Okay, all, all right. right. There we go, perfect. Okay, we'll get started. So uh, my name is Casey Grover. I'm an emergency physician in Monterey, California. It's the central coast of California, about two hours south of San Francisco. And we're gonna go through what we do at my shop uh, for the non-opioid management of renal colic. And then we'll also talk about uh, kind of the evidence behind what we did. Uh, as far as conflicts of interest, I don't have any. Uh, and I'll give a little background about kind of how I got to, to what I do now. So um, in 2013, a colleague uh, at my emergency department, along with myself, created what is now called the Monterey County Prescribed Safe Initiative. So it's our uh, county's uh, opioid stewardship coalition, looking at alternatives to opioids, preventing overdoses, treating addiction, uh, and then advocating for patients with chronic pain. So we've been working on alternatives to opioids in my shop for about 10 years. And I got a briefly, um, the American College of Emergency Physicians has a pain and addiction care in the ED certification that you can show that you've been really advanced in the alternatives to opioid field. And I'm very proud that my little hospital in Monterey, California is one of seven hospitals in the country that has this PACE designation. And we are one of three hospitals or three EDs in the country at the gold level. And the gold level would include St. Joseph's Health, which created the program, Harvard, and little old community hospital of the Monterey Peninsula in Monterey. So we're very proud of the work that we do. Um, and then additionally, California has the California Opioid Care Honor Roll Program. Uh, and we've received awards for our uh, alternatives to opioids and opiate stewardship multiple years now for our work. So um, I've been the chair of our hospital's pain management work group for about six years. So alternatives to opioids is something that's been really a, kind of an integral part of my practice now. Uh, depending on which hat I'm wearing for about five to 10 years. So kind of when I think about pain, I think about kind of four basic concepts. So the first is, is I, I think about, look, we gotta treat pain appropriately. And I use that word very specifically. We wanna be aggressive in our pain management. People come to us because it hurts, right? So I wanna be as aggressive as I can in trying to make sure that my patient gets the relief that they need. But I also use the word appropriate to say that I don't need to get everybody from a 10 down to a zero. I focus on the tolerability of their pain. And kind of one of the simplest questions I ask to patients is, do you need something for your pain? So if somebody comes in with real bad flank pain and I ask them, do you think you need something for pain? They might say, no, doc, it's tolerable right now. And I, I just leave it there. I don't necessarily get a pain score on everybody. That zero to 10 famous pain scale that... Um, has really unfortunately kind of fueled a lot of people getting more opiates than they needed by saying things were a 10. So again, my thoughts are treat pain appropriately, be aggressive, but understand that really it's getting the patient to a point where they're comfortable, where the pain is tolerable, but that doesn't mean the pain has to be a zero. The second thing is we wanna get uh, away from new starts of opioids. Uh, really, you know, kind of, it's hard to know who is going to have a reaction to opioids that's gonna to lead to an opiate use disorder. I'll talk about some of the risk factors, but if I can manage a patient without opiates, that's a win in my book. So I really try to avoid a new start of opiate if possible. When I do need an opiate, I wanna use the lowest possible dose for the shortest period of time. I think that's pretty well established right now uh, as far as just kind of best practice for pain management, both in the emergency department and beyond. And then the last thing I think of is a multimodal approach, right? I want to get as many different receptor types activated, you know, NSAIDs, acetaminophen, lidocaine, gabapentinoids, maybe an opioid as needed. All those receptors come together in a synergistic or additive effect. And I think of it as either opiate sparing, meaning I can use multiple meds to avoid an opiate at all, or I can reduce the need for opiate that I can maybe only use a very small amount of opiate if pain is severe if I'm using all those other drug classes. So again, these are kind of best practices for pain management at my institution. And I think the one that I like best is multimodal, particularly because it makes sense to patients, right? If you add more different types of medications, it's gonna wrap around to provide that synergistic pain relief. So I work at a hospital in Monterey, Monterey, California. And uh, these are the guidelines that we wrote up. In fact, I wrote them myself for my emergency department for the management of renal colic. And one brief aside, if anyone can see the video, I'm wearing a pink shirt and a pink tie. I'm not really a tie guy, but my daughter is home today and she 
decided that she wanted to pick out what I was going to wear today. So she loves pink. So this was for her. So in any case, uh, this is uh, these guidelines for us, how to use alternatives to opioids and a multimodal pain management approach. Um, and I'm going to talk about the evidence of all of these in really great detail, but I'm going to go ahead and just kind of, this is how we do it. First line is going to be, uh, our first line is going to be NSAIDs, most specifically uh, Ketorolac. We like to add in acetaminophen. We'll also add in adjunct therapies to that first line, the antispasmodic dicyclamine, and then the alpha blocker tamsulosin. Our second line is going to be IV lidocaine, and I'll show you what that looks like. And then if pain is refractory to those, then we'll consider adding in opioids. And you'll notice here, I used morphine and fentanyl and tried to avoid hydromorphone simply because I think the data would suggest that hydromorphone is the most euphoric. Now, that being said, I agree with Dr. Stanton. If you walk in and somebody's just bouncing off the walls, they're in so much pain, I'm going to give them a dose of Ketorolac and come back in five to 10 minutes. And if they're miserable, I will jump the line and order a dose of opioid while I'm uh, also ordering junks. People don't need to suffer as we go down the algorithm. If someone's in really bad pain, use your best clinical judgment. So this is what we do in the ED. And these are largely stones that we can manage as an outpatient. If someone's got a two millimeter stone and a fever, it may be a little bit different. As far as going home, my first line is going to be NSAIDs. I recommend around the clock NSAIDs and around the clock uh, acetaminophen. And then I'm again gonna add in those adjunct therapies, which we'll talk about in detail, dicyclamine and tamsulosin. Now, when people do need opioids, again, I'm only going to choose to give opioids when I cannot manage a person's pain in the emergency department without an opioid. Meaning if someone does well with a non-opiate regimen in the ED, there's no reason to give them an opiate for discharge. You've already proven they've done well. So if people do need an opioid for discharge, I'm gonna go with the lowest dose for the shortest amount of time. And then I always ask my patients four standard questions for any diagnosis if I'm gonna give them an opioid. Do you have a history of addiction? Do you have an active addiction? Do you have a history of severe mental illness? And is there a family history of addiction? And sometimes I pull those out of the EHR, right? You know, there's, I see in the chart as I'm walking in the room, it's got a history of bipolar. Those are the four major risk factors for developing a use disorder. And so um, I'm gonna ask, you know, my patients, you might need an opiate for discharge. Let's talk about it if it's a good fit for you. And I'm gonna ask them those four questions. And if they, they have two or three of those that are positive, I might have to have the difficult conversation with them that the risk of the opioids actually outweighs the benefit. So we use Epic, regrettably, at my institution. I apologize for the editorial. If you like Epic, my apologies. We've had some frustrations with ours. But this is a screenshot of what our lidocaine for pain infusion looks like. Uh, you Usually you pre-check it, so you get a rhythm strip. They're on telemetry. Um, it's given as um, 1 to 1.5 per kilo, given in a pump over 10 minutes. You can see it maxes out at 200 milligrams. And then there's also a pre-standard warning to the nurses, stop infusion and contact the physician immediately if they develop tinnitus, paresthesias, lightheadedness, or they develop any ectopy on the monitors. And it, it's pretty plug and play at this point. Uh, we've been doing this for about five years using IV lidocaine and RUD. Um, additionally, um, I've been able to put together some order panels for discharge. Um, on the upper left, that's my standard discharge for non-opioid management of renal colic and discharge. Uh, it's an NSAID, dicyclamine, and tamsulosin. And then I usually add in an antiemetic just in case. Some people love Ketorolac and say, Doc, I am not going home unless you give me some Ketorolac. So I do have a second one, which you can see down in the right lower part of the screen, which is with oral Ketorolac as well. Um, and again, these are my go-to uh, when I'm discharging patients home well, with renal colic. So just one story I want to share, and I don't know how, uh, you know, y'all are when you're, you're thinking about remembering patient stories, but I always remember the room patients were in. So for me, this was room 38 in my ED. Um, it was probably about five years ago now. A gentleman comes in, he's got some right flank pain, doesn't have any history of gallbladder disease or renal colic, so I an ultrasound, some labs, urine, and he says, doc, I don't need anything for pain right now. I say, okay. I order his tests. Turns out he's got a little blood in his urine, his labs otherwise look okay. And he's got a little hydro on that right kidney. And I come back in and I say, sir, it looks like you've got a kidney stone. And he says, doc, I'm, I'm really in pain now. I'm ready for something. So I said, okay. So I ordered him some intramuscular Ketorolac. And I came back about 30 minutes later. He's like, doc, it is magic. My pain is gone. What did you give me? 
And I told him it was Ketorolac and didn't think much of it and discharged him home with a non-opioid regimen. It was a smaller stone. Six months later, again in room 38, the same gentleman checks in and his chief complaint on the board is flank pain. And as I walk in the room, he's like, hey, doc, you're the doc that gave me that magic shot. I want that magic shot again. And I didn't really remember him. And as I began to talk to him, it kind of flooded back to me. And he literally said, I just, I really just want that magic shot. That's what took my pain completely away. And that for him was Ketorolac. And he was having another kidney stone uh, during that episode. So one story, a little bit of an anecdote. We all know that the plural of anecdote is not data. So let's go into some data. So the first question is, why do kidney stones hurt? And there's really three mechanisms. The first is the stone gets stuck and causes local inflammation and irritation in the ureter. In, um, sorry, additionally, there is also an obstruction in the urinary flow because of that stone that leads to an increase in the pressure of the ureter and distension of that ureter, which causes pain. And then third, there is spasm of the ureter when there is an obstruction. And I'm gonna just mention this here, it'll make sense in just a second. And that's mediated by prostaglandins. So those three mechanisms are why kidney stones hurt. So we're gonna go through each of the meds I recommended and talk about why they work. So let's start with NSAIDs. NSAIDs actually attack all three mechanisms for why kidney stones hurt. As an anti-inflammatory, they reduce local inflammation from the stone. They block the production of prostaglandins and therefore that spasm, that colicky pain. And then they actually will transiently reduce renal blood flow, therefore reduce urinary output and reduce the pressure within the ureter. So really mechanistically, NSAIDs should be our first line. So let's dig into some data here. So this is from Academic Emergency Medicine. I believe it's in 2021. I have a little zoom bar across my screen there, but this is a, this is a, a, a study looking at how effective is Ketorolac at relieving renal colic at three different dosages. So I'll be brief here. They basically, in this one, they used uh, the visual analog scale. So from zero to hundred on how severe is the pain. And at baseline in all three groups, they were at a 90 or the equivalent of a nine out of 10 on the pain scale. And at 30, 20, and 10 milligrams of Ketorolac, everyone's pain score dropped by at least four, if not five, on that pain scale. So on that visual analog scale, they dropped from 90 to 40 or 50. When we think of that on the zero to pain scale, they dropped from a nine to a five or a four. And interestingly, the one that had the most drop was 10 milligrams of Ketorolac, dropped that visual analog scale by 50. So that's an over 50% reduction in pain at 10 milligrams of Ketorolac IV. And the data from Sergei Motov has really been great to say that Ketorolac is just as effective at 10 milligrams with less side effects. So my starting dose now for renal colic is 10 milligrams IV of Ketorolac. Now you might be saying, okay, I get it. Ketorolac works when you try it by itself. What if you go head to head with an opioid? So this is an older study. This is from Annals of Emergency Medicine in 1996. And for younger physicians like me, we haven't used a lot of meparidine in our practice, but this is a, basically a head-to-head -head study of IV ketorolac, IV meparidine, or both for renal colic. And in this study, they basically said, we're going to define successful pain relief as a 50% reduction in the pain score. The ketorolac group, 75% achieved that goal. Ketorolac plus meparidine, 74% achieved that goal. Meparidine alone, I believe was only 23%. So really, the, so the Ketorolac is doing the heavy lifting in the group where, um, so I'm just moving my screen around so I can see my slides. Uh, really, the, uh, the Ketorolac was doing the heavy lifting here. So once again, 75% of cases, Ketorolac brought that pain score down by 50%. When you combined it with an opiate, it was still 75%, but opiate alone, only 23%. So Ketorolac was basically three times more effective at relieving renal colic pain than an opioid, which was specifically was meparidine. All right, just gonna move. Um, so I'm having a little tech issue here, so I clicked in the wrong place, I apologize. All right, this is not a journal I read regularly, the Turkish Journal of Emergency Medicine, but uh, they had a really great study here uh, in 2022 looking at uh, uh, basically various combinations of morphine plus NSAIDs against morphine alone. So they have IV, IV, excuse me, IV ibuprofen where they practice. So this was, this was three groups. So it was IV ibuprofen plus morphine, IV ketorolac plus morphine, and morphine alone. 
And in this slide, what they found is basically that at, um, at baseline, the pain score was an 8.4 out of 10. And in the, um, in the ibuprofen group and the Ketorolac group, the pain went down to a three from that 8.4. However, in comparison, uh, in the morphine group, it was not as much of a relief. It actually only went down to about seven. So when you compare again, the NSAID plus morphine to the morphine alone, you have a drastically greater reduction in the pain when you use those NSAIDs. And it really would suggest that the opiate is not doing much for the pain relief. The NSAID is doing the lion's share of the pain relief. And we know that because mechanistically, it actually addresses all three reasons why people have pain from renal colic. So my take home here, we looked at three studies that show that NSAIDs are extremely effective and more effective than opiates when relieving pain from renal colic. So let's move on to lidocaine. So lidocaine is a bit unique here. It acts as a smooth muscle relaxant to release the spasm in the ureter. And it also actually works through an extra mechanism where it reduces the transmission of pain from the ureter through the afferent pathways to the CNS. So it actually provides an additional mechanism by which it's able to relieve pain. And this was a great study. This was a study from 2012, which was basically looking at head-to-head -head IV lidocaine versus IV morphine. And this was a study where they said, we are gonna define success as getting the pain down to less than three out of 10. And what they found when they used IV lidocaine alone, 90% of patients were able to get down to that less than three level whereas only 70% of patients in the morphine group were able to get down to that level. So again, here, when you go head to head, IV lidocaine is more effective than IV morphine for renal colic. This was also uh, another great study on this topic. This was just looking at IV lidocaine alone. This was from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And they were almost kind of playing with different ways to use uh, lidocaine for the management of renal colic in the emergency department. And they did it in basically two ways when they said, we're gonna give IV lidocaine as a first line agent for renal colic, on average, it dropped the pain score by 7.4. That's a pretty profound reduction. Um, when they use it as a rescue, meaning it was given, an, an, another drug was given initially as the first line, and then um, lidocaine was given as a rescue, it dropped that pain score by 5.2. So on average, IV lidocaine was able to drop the pain from renal colic by five on that pain scale from zero out of 10. So two studies now showing that IV lidocaine is very effective for renal colic pain. Now this one was something that I wasn't as familiar with, the antispasmodics. And the one I'm gonna talk about here is dicyclamine and the brand name is Bentol, which I think we mostly think of for like intestinal pain and cramping. But these antispasmodics are medications that can reduce the pain from renal colic by reducing the smooth muscle spasm of the ureter. And there's really only been one study on this. this. This was from a journal in 2012. And this was looking at basically taking NSAIDs, which we now know are effective for renal colic and adding in the antispasmodic. And basically what they were able to say is that the NSAIDs you know, reduce uh, edema and inflammation related to the stone. And the addition of the antispasmodic is able to increase the pain relief in an additive fashion by increasing the amount of spasm relief. And you can see here, there's that small little graph on the right side of the screen. They used a visual analog scale here and their patients started at an 80 out of 100, equivalent to an eight out of 10 on the pain scale. And with this uh, combination of dexketoprofen, which is an NSAID and acyclamine, they were able to get patients down to a 10 or a 20 on that visual analog scale, which is the equivalent of a one or a two out of 10 on that pain scale. So this is again, just drastic pain relief of just an NSAID plus an antispasmodic. This was another one that was a little bit of a surprise for me. I mean, I always thought, think about, you know, tamsulosin as an alpha blocker is really just for medical expulsive therapy, meaning we want to get the stone out. And we might even consider that a fifth mechanism of pain relief. If you get the silly stone out, it stops hurting. In the meantime, though, while the stone is still there, the alpha blockade of tamsulosin reduces the pressure in the ureter and adds to the reduction of spasm in the ureter. And this was a study looking at a comparison between nifedipine, a calcium channel blocker, and tamsulosin, an alpha blocker for medical expulsive therapy for distal ureteric stones with renal colic. 
And basically the way they measured the efficacy of analgesic relief of these two medications was they said, how often do people have to take analgesics on top of either the tamsulosin or the nifedipine? And what they found is that in people taking nifedipine, they needed 70% more pain medication than those taking tamsulosin. So it turns out that tamsulosin itself actually reduces pain from renal colic. So kind of putting it all together, what do I do in my practice? I absolutely love IV Ketorolac. It is my first line, unless they have an allergy, chronic kidney disease, or they are um, uh, allergic. Um, even with our gastric bypass patients at our institution, we've talked to our bariatric surgeons and they've said, go ahead and give a single dose, but usually don't discharge them home ours. Now, if somebody doesn't, uh, sorry, can't tolerate uh, IV Ketorolac, then I'm going to move on to my, my next uh, therapeutic regimens down the line. But IV Ketorolac is my first line. I usually give a dose. If they're in a lot of pain, I'll cycle back in about 10, 15 minutes. If they really need something else, I'll add in my adjuncts and a little bit of opioid. But generally, I will give people IV Ketorolac. It works so well. I may need to add in the, adju the adjuncts. I will give IV lidocaine if they're still in pain. And I really reserve opiates for the, for the refractory pain. As far as discharge, you saw my discharge panels. Everyone goes home on NSAIDs, dicyclamine, and tamsulosin. I recommend medications around the clock rather than as needed to provide consistent pain relief rather than trying to be reactive. I recommend patients take around the clock acetaminophen on top of this regimen. And then I also uh, will only give a dose, oh, sorry, well, I will only give a discharge prescription for opioids um, to those who don't respond well to non-opiate therapy in the ED. And then I really try to set my patients up for positive expectation. I'm gonna let people know that I'm gonna give them a combination of the most effective medications uh, for renal colic. And if you are going to give somebody uh, opiates for discharge, Turns out when they've studied this, the average person only needs three tablets of opioid for managing renal colic at home. This was a study from 2021. So you probably don't need to give people a big prescription. My prescriptions for discharge are usually somewhere between six to eight tablets of opioids I need. Just briefly, because we're getting short on time, my friend Gina is in recovery from opiates and she got 90 Norco after she got a kidney stone in my emergency department about 15 years ago. And she looks back and realizes that those 90 Norco are what set off her opioid disorder. And I just wonder what her life would have been like differently if we had been using uh, alternatives to opioids at that time. And then briefly, shameless plug, if anyone's interested in addiction, I'm board eligible in addiction. I do have an addiction podcast that is geared towards emergency medicine providers. Uh, if you're interested, this is the name of the podcast and you can check it out. And with that, I'm gonna stop my share. And uh, I will, uh, we can move on to questions in the chat and then just a general discussion. Yeah, I appreciate it, Casey. That's uh, fantastic uh, information. I appreciate you um, uh, mentioning that. Uh, one thing I noticed, and if anybody has questions, drop them in the chat or unmute yourself, raise your hand, whatever it may be, we'll be happy to answer them. Uh, I noticed uh, on your insets that a lot of the a lot of the standard dosing for in a lot of the EMRs is still the Ketorolac 30 and 60, and a lot of times reverting to the ibuprofen 800. Can you touch on the reason for the dosing 10 to 15 with the idea behind the uh, analgesic ceiling um, and with regard to insets? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's an emergency physician named Sergey Motov who's done most of the research on this. And really when they've studied Ketorolac, um, the, the, you don't get that much more analgesia beyond about 10 milligrams. So when I started at my hospital 10 years ago, it was 30 IV and 60 IM. And we realized that has a higher incidence of side effects. So based on the recent data that really the analgesic max is at 10 milligrams of Ketorolac, we give 10 IV or 15 IM. And that was something that our pharmacy researched and validated as well. Additionally, with ibuprofen specifically, the analgesic ceiling is somewhere between 400 and 600 milligrams. Going higher on either ibuprofen or Ketorolac, you may get some additional anti-inflammatory effects, but those are really more for inflammatory conditions, things like rheumatoid arthritis. So particularly as we have an older population where I live, we try to reduce the dose of NSAIDs to maximize analgesia while reducing side effects. So that's the reason why we go with 10 and 15 of Ketorolac and other 400 or 600 of ibuprofen. Fantastic question from Michael just dropped uh, on the chat. What's the dose for the dental and the administration? Uh, I, I 
I assume that we're still talking IM and PO, correct? Correct. So it's 20 milligrams IM or 20 milligrams PO, uh, and it's dosed four times daily. So my standard discharge is 20 PO QID, and I will give a single intramuscular 20 milligrams in the emergency department. And it's kind of like uh, uh, there isn't actually an IV administration for bentolin. Don't do that. I've seen that happen once. Right. Uh, risk management, hopefully not on here. Um, <laughs> but uh, somebody read it was IM and, and gave it IV. And it's it's a interesting experience for a little while. It's kind of like uh, you don't realize what happens when you give um, intraarterial Zofran. It really does some funny stuff to hand. So um, so that that the dicyclamine is going to be an IM or a PO uh, dosing. And, and what I find typically when my patients come in um, with uh, renal colic, I'll hit them with the Ketorolac, something anti-medic wise, um, and uh, Tylenol straight up front. Um, <clears throat> then we'll throw in the lidocaine that takes a little bit to come from the pharmacy. Some ERs will mix it themselves, but in our case, the pharmacy uh, took that role to mix it. So it takes a little while for it to come down, but by that time, most of the patients are feeling pretty good. So it's plus or minus depending on where I think uh, think we're going to get. I had one more question. Okay, so I mentioned I saw that you cap your lidocaine at two hundred, and I'm, my facility we cap it at one fifty just because of being the one pink box. Uh, is there any magic number to that, or is or is it uh, really just whatever is best and easiest, most convenient for your nurses and pharmacy staff? Yeah, the the data would suggest it's one to one point five per kilo. Um, and our, our, when I, when I met with our pharmacy to discuss it, that was the dose that they felt made the most sense for a cap. Um, so I would, you know, I think a lot of this is institutional dependence. So, you know, we have a policy that the nurses can reference that was approved by our ED nursing director and the director of the pharmacy. And so we just had to get everybody on the same page. So institutionally, that's just what we chose. Um, that was our pharmacist decision. I don't know if I can explain more background on that. Um, and with, in this case with, uh, with renal colic, um, you know, it really is about getting the, the treatments on as quickly as possible. It is a hideously uncomfortable, con uh, hideously uncomfortable condition. Um, you know, they, and so it is something we want to get uh, analgesia on as quickly and rapidly as possible. But I think one of the most important things I hit on it, you hit on it, uh, with the education, um, and I think uh, Emily sent me a message about, you know, just educating the public as well. And that was one of the things that St. Joseph talked about was the education turn of that these medications are, in fact, uh, strong, uh, strong pain medications and the most beneficial in terms of these situations because of the mechanism of action, actually treating the source and reason for the pain, not just covering the pain. Um, and it, but I also feel that there's that education within healthcare too, that uh, people feel like that uh, NSAIDs and uh, Tylenol are for minor pain and that opioids are designed for significant pain. You know, what are your thoughts on uh, the fact that we, we still have this kind of biased mindset with regard to the tiering of uh, Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, in our local area, we only have four hospitals in my county, and our hospital is clearly the tip of the spear on non-opioid management. And the community has really rallied around us. Um, so, you know, people know that when they come to, to my hospital, we call it CHOMP, Community Hospital of the Modern Peninsula, that they're going to get, you know, something that might be a little bit more um, kind of new edge. And, and patients are generally very receptive to it. Again, this is, again, 10 years of work in this space in our community. Um, but I think, you know, when... Uh, I go to prescribe acetaminophen for really anyone in the emergency department. I try to provide the why unless they ask for it by name. Because people are like, why would I come to the ER for acetaminophen? Like I can buy that at CVS on the way home. And again, I usually come down and I say, we have to understand how the body works and that we have many different ways to treat pain. If we want to get the best pain relief, we want to hit every last one of those different options. And they, act, they come together and often, often can produce actually a stronger pain relief effect. And sometimes people decline it. And I tell them that's totally okay. I understand. But I want to use all the different ways we can treat pain in your body because I want to take your pain seriously. Um, if anyone um, likes, uh, why am I blanking? Henry, uh, Greg Henry, sorry. Greg Henry's listening. Sorry, Greg Henry. <laughs> uh, Greg Henry gave a great lecture when I was a resident on, you know, medicine is show business for every people. Sometimes you got to put on the show, you know, tell them, look them right in the eye, sir, I want to take your pain extremely seriously. And because of that, I want to use all the different classes of medication that we have. 
So sometimes it's a little bit of a, like some scripting, um, you know, and my colleagues in the emergency department make fun of me. I wear knee pads on shift because I always kneel down next to the gurney. So I'm at eye level with people. And once you make that intense eye contact and let them know that you really want to treat their pain seriously, I find people are willing to say, I'm willing to accept that Tylenol in addition to whatever else you want, doc. Uh, one person Great did question. mention, oh, yeah, the intense nausea commonly associated with yes. kidney stones. It, I don't know if I found that in the literature. Uh, I'm assuming it's you know nausea related to the severe pain from anything, maybe somewhat of a vagal response. Um, again, my usual is intravenous on Dancitron. Uh, if it's refractory, my favorite's going to be metoclopramide just because of the decreased incidence of extrapyramidal effects. Um, but yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. That's actually why I give everybody on Dancitron a discharge. Um, and if folks are particularly nauseated when I'm doing my initial assessment, it's kind of a one-two Ketorolac on Dancitron together. And the thing to keep in mind is that, you know, the, the nervous, the intervention, uh, innervation, intervention, innervation, um, of the uh, renal system is, is very closely related to and kind of crosses over the GI tract. And so anytime there's a pain, there's a response like that, it's going to respond as well. And so if you treat the pain, you'll find that a lot of times once the pain subsides, the nausea goes with it. A lot of times I like giving the Ondansetron because it gets some, if the pain starts to come back, it allows them to then get the medications that they need uh, in place. And with discharging with Ketorolac and, you know, pharmacist on here, you can help me as to why it's still the medication we call about and say, well, did they get a dose? Because I can't prescribe it if they haven't already had a dose, like, you know, want us to fall in the spear, but we don't do that with every other medication. But that being said, um, you know, my, my preset in Epic, which we are as well, is a uh, pre-select for the number of tablets for the uh, Ketorolac 10 milligrams timing and a statement that says patient received a dose in the emergency department to, to prevent that call uh, that you're inevitably going to get. When you place these orders, do you order the telemetry rhythm strip and lidocaine at the same time as the first line meds to allow pharmacy time to compound or do you wait for assessment? For me, and I'll, uh, in case I'll let you answer, for me, yes. I put anytime I want to do any medicines in the emergency department, um, you know, any interventions, anything like this, I put them on the monitor, not just because of the medications we're giving, but also I can kind of monitor their pain response based on their vital signs. And I have all of the rhythm strip, I mean, all of the monitors above my computer so I can keep and watch it. Yeah, it's the same way, you know, our policy, we sat down with pharmacy to be able to come up with a plan that we all agreed upon. And so uh, as I showed in the screenshot, it's basically kind of, it's, it's a four clicks. Um, it's, you know, telemetry, it's oxygen as needed, it's the lidocaine dose, and then it's no notify the provider immediately in the case of the side effects that we want to monitor for. And then usually we have a pharmacist in the ED, um, uh, like I think 12 hours a day, and we'll usually just come over and tap them on the shoulder and be like, hey, I need some IV lidocaine for room four, and they'll start getting ready. So not a huge delay, but we like to get them on the monitor because, you know, let's say somebody's having you know, some dysrhythmia that we didn't know about, or they're having a bunch of ectopy, that might change our management. Uh, and we might want to say, yeah, let's go ahead and drop that down in our, 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 to much later in, the, um, in our algorithm until we get some electrolytes back or something. So we've had a great partnership with pharmacy and kudos to my pharmacists in my hospital, which have been just, they've been so amazingly helpful in, in promoting alternatives to opioids. And they themselves have had an opiate stewardship initiative in, uh, in their department. Do you have exclusion criteria for patients receiving IV lidocaine? Um, do you have any, any of that, Casey? Do you, do you have an exclusion criteria? Yeah, ours fires as a part of the EHR. Um, so I, I made a kind of a disparaging remark about Epic, and hopefully no one from Epic was listening because I'm sure I'll get a nasty gram. But uh, uh, actually, this is where it's helpful. You know, it'll say like they have a history of a particular dysrhythmia or, you know, um, they'll say that there's a drug-drug interaction because they're on, you know, amiodarone or something. So we actually rely on Epic to fire those alerts. It's usually going to be a history of a malignant dysrhythmia or some sort of drug-drug interaction. Those are the big ones. Fantastic. And if nobody else has any questions, then we'll let everybody go. And Casey, thanks for riding the, you know, hitting the pink shirt, pink tie. That's my favorite. I wore mine this last weekend <laughs> and I will probably wear it again in September. And uh, as for me, I just wore my Kentucky t-shirt because I yeah, thought yeah, I was yeah. going to put on a button up shirt and I just got more coffee. So yeah, stuff happens. Dr. Grover, really appreciate your time. Incredible information. We've reached the top of the hour. I want everybody to be able to get to get to their rest of their work day. Um, Emily posted in there, the KentuckySOS.com. Contact her at ehenderson at kyha.com. There's Stacey Allen at s allen at kyha.com. 
chompgrover.com uh, for Casey, casey.grover at chomp.org. And for me, rstanton at asep.org. And um, we really appreciate everything. Um, David, you stay on a second. I'll answer uh, your question, but we want to make sure we wrap in time to make sure everybody can um, make their way on. Uh, so we really appreciate your time. Casey, I really appreciate it. Kay, uh, Kentucky Hospital Association, appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Presentation from the Kentucky Statewide Opioid Stewardship Program with myself and Dr. Casey Grover. And uh, hope this is helpful, pass along. Uh, we can effectively treat acute pain presentations at our emergency department often without ever pushing a button associated with an opioid. Um, for me, you can contact me at rstantondacep.org, rstantondacep.org, or at Everyday Med on Twitter. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been Samesa Frontline. If you're not on the front lines, you're on the sidelines.